reading the book of Ecclesiastes can feel like taking a walk immediately after a massive thunderstorm. At first, all you notice are the branches that are on the ground and that there's debris everywhere. But soon you look around and realize there's an unusual freshness. The air is crisper. Colors pop with with an uncommon detail. And the things that have remained in place through the storm all of the sudden seem more firmly fixed than they did before. On the one hand, the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes have the power to expose lightly held convictions and loosely tied down comforts. On the other hand, the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes also serve to give us words, describing thoughts and desires that we feel deep down, but often struggle to to verbalize. The result of this is that we often walk around day to day with an uneasiness in our souls that continues day after day after monotonous day. C.S. Lewis once described wrestling with the emotions we feel inside and, and pain and grief in particular like this. It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Come on with it. I didn't know you and C.S. Lewis were friends, but your gray hair betrays you. But in many ways, I think this describes the point of the preacher in today's passage. No matter how hard you work, or what types of feelings are elicited from your experiences, the reality of the way the world works is that people come and go. Rivers and streams continue to flow. History is repeated. The earth continues to spin round and round on its axis and the drill drills on. But by God's grace, we are not left to despair because the preacher wants us to see that the world is organized in such a way as to direct us to the designer who made it our passage is ecclesiastes 1 verses 3 through 11 and since we're just kind of getting started in the book of ecclesiastes i'll just begin with verse 1 hear the word of almighty god The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, 
vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So, Lord, would you now minister to us by your Spirit? Help us to see what you want us to see. That is, for us this morning, would you reveal the greatness of the glory of Christ as it relates to this particular passage? And we ask it in his name. Amen. The show Seinfeld in the 90s was genius. Laughter just happens just hearing the name. Whether they were just looking for a parking spot or going out for a bowl of soup, the genius of Seinfeld was to get us to look at something ordinary. Something we've all observed closely enough and to get us to keep looking at it until we began to laugh and laugh and laugh. The genius of wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes, is to get us to look at something ordinary we've all observed closely enough until we begin to long to long for something greater. Last week, we summarized the the essence of the message of Ecclesiastes like this. Life can be extremely frustrating because it can't be fully comprehended or controlled. But God has designed this world so that our pleasure and our pain, our excitement and our exasperation, the things that cause us to marvel and even life's monotony all direct us 
to find our ultimate fulfillment in him. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the preacher's opening question as he begins to build his case that life is is somewhat mysteriously maddening because it can't be fully comprehended and it can't be fully controlled. He enters two observations into evidence to make his case. One, accomplishment is a mirage. And two, uniqueness is a myth. Now, these truths grab our attention because no sooner do you hear them than your Western mind begins to formulate counter-arguments against them. Immediately you realize these, these summaries swim directly against the current of the entire culture directly against the way we are accustomed to think. But that's precisely the point. The power of wisdom literature in the Bible is that it challenges us to think hard about the conventional wisdom of the day. Wisdom literature does not typically offer propositional truths. True, false, true, false. Rather, its truth is proverbial in nature. That is, it is designed to get us to begin asking the right questions about what is actually true. The preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to consider his claims and then begin to ask if accomplishment is a mirage, if uniqueness is a myth, then what do we do now? Context must be considered in order for proverbial wisdom to be correctly understood and correctly applied. Think of Job's friends. Much of what they said was biblical, just not applicable in context, which therefore made their biblical counsel actually unbiblical. In other words, unbiblical counsel is often just biblical wisdom misapplied. Look, we we often want to know what is right and what is wrong. Black and white, cut to the chase, executive summary, yes or no. But the problem is that life is far more complex than that. It's not so neatly ordered most of the time. To benefit from wisdom literature, we must follow the trajectory of thought. And think about it in light of the full revelation of God's word, which is exactly what we're going to do this morning. So then, my suggestion about how to best engage with the preacher in Ecclesiastes is to put your counter-arguments 
on hold for the moment so that you might actually hear the voice of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what profit or literally what advantage does man get by all the work he does under the sun? He emphasizes work twice in, in just this one sentence question, I think, to make the point that, one, there's a lot of work. It makes up an enormous part of our life. And two, it's really tough. But the question that he's driving towards is to get us to ask, in light of all that we invest into work, What's the point in the end? And he begins to help us feel the uncomfortability of his thought. The phrase under the sun used here in his question in verse 3 essentially means on earth. That is, opposed to in heaven. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6-9. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The importance of this distinction is that it orients the question as an observation about life on earth under the curse. Notice how similar the essence of Ecclesiastes 1 3 through 11 is, which we just read, compared to the account in Genesis 17 and 19. Adam, to Adam, he said, because you sinned. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Cursed is the ground. Endless toil. And then you die. And it's back into the ground. That's why one man described Ecclesiastes as a commentary on life outside the garden. As I mentioned last week. Consider how Paul describes the situation in Romans 8. He uses this phrase... For the creation itself was subjected to futility. We all get this, right? Diaper is changed. What do you know? Diaper is full. When we, when we were first married, my dad at the time worked for uh, Procter & Gamble, who, who makes pampers. And so he would get all these damaged boxes from displays and that kind of thing. And we had something like, it was something unbelievable, like, like 2,000 diapers. And I thought, how many kids does he think we have? Right? We're not having quintuplets. We blew through those diapers faster than I thought was humanly possible. Right? The diapers changed, and the diaper is filled. The bills are paid. 
and you go to the mailbox or receive another email and the bill is due again. You go to the grocery store, you fill up the fridge, and the fridge is empty. I remember one time in high school, some of my buddies and I were helping bring in the groceries because his mom had just gone to the grocery store, and then we sat down together and ate a whole box of cereal, and she was so mad. She's like, it didn't even make it into the cupboard, and it's gone, just gone. Cut the grass, a couple days later. It's back. It doesn't matter what it is. But you get a sense of the monotony to which all things have been subjected. But frustration and futility is, is much more than just hard labor. Deeper than that is the realization sooner or later that advancement, that is accomplishment, true gain, is in fact a mirage. You've, you've seen this probably in your work. You work so hard to get to a certain place, and then all of a sudden it's gone. I got the promotion. And then I was terminated. We worked for months and months and months on this project, and, and in one decision, nope, we're going in another direction. Nothing. I remember driving up and down 94 that goes between Chicago and Milwaukee, driving a water truck, up and down, mile after mile, day after day, thinking, is this all there is? Is this, is this the full measure, the full scope of, of, of my life? But, but Art and I were just talking this week because Art worked at Ruby's and I worked uh, at the water company and you realize you come into full-time ministry and you realize those questions don't go away, right? You, you, you work hard all week and you prepare and you preach your heart out. Monday morning, the computer screen is blank again. Completely blank. Much like my mind on Monday morning. The, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to think, what am I really accomplishing? What does my, my work actually add to the world in and of itself, by itself? And, and he helps us by pointing us to the creation to see it. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but, but the earth itself, it remains forever. The question becomes, have you come to the end of yourself as it relates to your work? Have you come to realize the, the profitlessness of it all apart from its relation to God and his work in the world? Have you died to your work or are you identified by it? In other words, the answer is not to be apathetic about work. We can pursue goals and accomplishment with all of our might, but we can't allow ourselves to be defined by that. The preacher's 
beginning to get us to think more deeply about what he's saying. There is a certain irony that the earth was to be ruled over by man. But generations go and generations come and the earth remains steadfast, immovable. Notice the stability and the constancy of the world, verses 5 and 6. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Or he continues, streams of water flow all day, every day, and yet the sea is never any more full than it was the day before. The preacher asks, do you really think that your vapor-like existence will add to the output of a world like this? As powerful as the sun is, as untamable as the wind is, as relentless as the flow of all the rivers on earth, what has the sun accomplished after all these years? How far did the wind actually get? It came right back to the starting place. How much water have all of the rivers and all of the streams and all of the tributaries, how much have they added to the sea? To the one with an inflated view of our own freedom and of our own accomplishments, because you think, yeah, I've made it to the next level. And that could be anything. I mean, that can be the child wiping his own bottom. Good work. There's a measure of freedom there, especially for mom and dad, actually. Right? I'm able to buckle in my car seat or out. Right? Eventually, I've got my license. There's a whole new world out there, right? In terms of freedom. You get your first job. Your first promotion. The job you've always dreamed of. You are the top dog. To the one who finds themselves in that place but remains unreflective in their tiny little orbit, the preacher says, look, you may think you're running free on the back of a young Mustang somewhere out in the open, but look around. The reality is you're sitting on a carousel around and around and around. You're not quite as free or accomplished as you might think. It's painful to realize the full scope of the futility of our, of our heavy lives. Remember, we talked about that word last week. When our lives are considered on their own, in isolation, all things are filled with weariness. Our eyes are always seeing. Our ears are always hearing. Yet like the sea, they're no more filled despite the inwardly incessant flow of information. In many ways, Ecclesiastes is a call to die. To die to this world and all of its allurements. That, me, that we might actually begin to learn to truly live. 
the monotony of it all. The inability to gain a true, perhaps even an eternal advantage. It's also exhausting and, and often exasperating when it's considered on its own. But God. But God has put eternity into the heart of man. So will the preacher say in chapter 3. And so we begin to ask real questions of our work in the world. Because deep down we understand we were made for more than monotony. Every fiber of our being fights futility. Every part of it longs for purpose, for true significance, for lives that matter. We want our work to count. We want the endless hours spent in parenting to count. We want our presence in this world to matter. Now, that's not necessarily just a Christian idea. The world loves this idea too. But it looks for it inside of us. The culture preaches, be true to yourself. No one can make you feel less than. You're amazing. You're so unique. You do you. No one has the right to deny your truth. But into that, the preacher says, reality check. Verses 9 through 12. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. You may not be as unique as you think you are. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. You may have thought you made a name for yourself in this world, but put it into perspective, the preacher says. In other words, stop the delusional self-adulation. You are not the center of the universe. Stop worshiping at the altar of self. You want to talk about a futile exercise. The reality is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On the one side is the glory of God and this line of demarcation. And then all the rest of us are on the other side of the line. We're not so special in that regard. Jeremiah put it this way to the nation of Israel, your fathers went after worthlessness and became worthless. So questions begin to arise. Given the way the world is, 
Will the desperate longings of my heart ever, ever be fulfilled? How do we move from the curse of fleeting insignificance to the blessing of sacred and eternal significance? Or we might think about it like this. How do we move from the reality that we are fleeting, our work is futile, and everything is vanity, even as the earth remains steadfast and immovable? How do we move from that reality to Paul's exhortation and Paul's promise in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where he says, look, beloved, You be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is in fact not in vain. Those are two massively opposite poles. What happened to fundamentally change the reality of our existence forever? Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the tension that the preacher sees about the reality of the way the world is? Well, Jesus happened. How rich and deep and full and multifaceted does his redemption seem in light of the call of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. His work, that is Jesus, his work replaced our futile work and then he gave us new work to do in him. This is the place where significance rises. His work replaced our work And then he gave us new work to do in him. On multiple occasions, Jesus described his coming and his calling as doing the works of the Father. He described it as his very food. Even as a boy, he once stayed in the temple behind his family when they went back out of town. You remember what he said about that. This is the way the King James put it. Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? If Jesus failed for even a second, for a millisecond, to fully do the work of his father perfectly in thought, word, or deed, he would have failed to accomplish the work of redemption. But think for a moment with me. This must necessarily, therefore, include his time as a carpenter. Jesus worked with full integrity four times longer, probably, as a carpenter than he did as a a, a preaching miracle worker. His work mattered. Every second of it mattered. The moment before he changed water into wine, he told his mother, my time has not yet come. And he was about 30 years old when he said that, probably working as a carpenter for easily more than a decade. 
Now, we certainly understand what Jesus meant by this. He meant the specific and unique work to which he alone had been called by his Father. That time had not yet come. But here we go. The specific and unique work was the redemption where he redeemed the entire cosmos from the curse Adam had brought upon the world. Through the work of redemption, Jesus, Jesus of course, dealt with the centrality of sin. But he also went about reversing the curse by dealing with the implications of sin. He delivered many people from from disease and from demons and from disaster and even from death. Jesus' work mattered. Jesus' work was eternally significant. Jesus' work changed the reality of our lives forever. Jesus accomplished, he accomplished the unique work the Father had given him. It was not a mirage. It was not a myth. It was real and truly significant. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. On the cross, Jesus bore all the punishment of our of our expressed enmity against him. For all of our specific sins, he endured the full, unmitigated wrath of God. When Jesus bought us back from the curse, he dealt not only with the specific punishment for sin itself, but he dealt with all of the effects of the fall. The futility the fleeting nature of life, from warped desires to death itself, from condemnation for sin to the fullness of creation itself. Just pause for a moment and marvel at the fullness of what Jesus has actually accomplished. It's amazing. In Romans 8, Paul said, the creation was subjected to futility and was groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. This is precisely what Jesus accomplished. He redeemed those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4. The Son of God is reversing the curse and revealing the sons and the daughters of God every single day. The miracle is that he has commanded us to join him in this work. You want to talk about significance. Genuine accomplishment. Uniqueness. He has commanded every one of his followers to follow his lead in this area. In terms of atonement, 
he declared on Calvary, it is finished. He did all of the work himself in that regard. But now he says, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, come with me. We're going to change the world. We're going out to get everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a a plumber or a piano player. If you're a manufacturer or a marketing executive. It doesn't matter if you're in kindergarten or if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're a a part-time model or a full-time missionary. And in particular on this day, moms rejoice because I can hardly think of a more strategically significant position than to raise the ones who will one day rule the world. Blessings, a thousand blessings to you. Exponential, exponential thanksgiving for you. Because you pour your lives out daily for the sake of others and ultimately for the glory of Christ. As Luther rightly pointed out, even even changing diapers becomes sacred when done for the glory of Christ. The implications of the work of Christ is this. We need not escape from nor find our identity in our work. Yet, fully satisfying and God-glorifying labor of every kind is now ours in Christ. In John 6, the crowds asked Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, everything hinges on Jesus. In Revelation, Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. In light of the message of Ecclesiastes, finally, finally something new under the sun. Something significant on earth and in heaven. Here is the place where true accomplishment is realized and where spiritual giftings are utilized in an utterly unique way. One individual person and one individual opportunity at a time. In Christ, absolutely every work of any type becomes eternally significant because anything done in the name of Christ is sacred. In Jesus, true uniqueness and everlasting accomplishment replace monotony and futility. Listen to the way Paul connects these ideas in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the reality that the preacher of Ecclesiastes, who I think was Solomon, this is the reality that he longed for from the core of his being, but could not, could not have fully envisioned. But his words give us words that help communicate what's going on in here. And his words help us to see the magnitude of the grace we have been given in Christ. Because the reality is, we have now been fully redeemed from futility forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are utterly, utterly amazed by Jesus. As we, as we look into your word and as it analyzes the world and as it probes our hearts, Father, you know sometimes we feel so overwhelmed and sometimes so discouraged. But I pray that now, joy, would arise in our hearts as we consider the fullness of what Jesus actually accomplished in redemption. We are so thankful that the penalty for our sin has been dealt with. But we are just as thankful that so has futility And the fleeting nature of this life. And the frustration that comes from not being able to fully comprehend or or to control what's happening in this world. So would you now give us clarity on Jesus. And through the person and the power of your Holy Spirit, would you cause our hearts to sing for joy. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer and the curse reverser. Amen.